this morning, we'll be looking at several passages of Scripture. And I'd like to begin by turning to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 31. I'll be approaching my message this morning topically rather than so much of an expositional message. And actually, I do so much expositional work that topical has become somewhat difficult for me. I have to admit that from the beginning. But I think it's necessary as we consider the the occasion of this day as we observe the sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Life as a gift from God. Life as God's work. Human life as a sacred work. A unique work of God. So we're looking at begin, from beginning point, Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the dumb, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. This passage here really addresses a lot of things for us. I think in light of the sanctity of human life, we're focused Particularly because of Roe versus Wade, this is this year the 32nd anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision, the court decision that granted abortion on demand. And sad to say, there have been the loss of uh, millions of the lives of the unborn as a result of that. But when we consider the sanctity of human life, we want to look beyond that. Of course, abortion is a critical issue for us but also euthanasia, the other end of the spectrum. Uh, Deceitfully named, renamed, mercy killing. The afflicted. Those who are terminally ill. Well, I'm of the opinion, and I think it's true amongst most evangelical Christians, not all, I understand that. But I'm of the opinion that Roe versus Wade is the baby that needs to die. And I'm very thankful for what we've seen in, in our culture in, in recent years of, because of technology, where we see into the, to the wombs of, of mothers these unborn children, and we realize that there's, there's a life there, and it's a human life, so much so that even those who insist upon the choice for women, that they're willing even now to acknowledge, yes, it is a human life, but is it a viable human life? And there's so much now that it indicates, yes, it is. But the, the argument has moved. They've, they are moving further and further away from the insistent, well, it's not really a human, it's just tissue. They're moving away from that because science tells us contrary. Again, most professing Christians and most denominations agree And the responsibility that we have to protect human life, whether it be the unborn or the aged or the disabled, those who are terminally ill. And the reason that we come to this position, the reason that we choose to stake and to stand in this battle is the supreme authority of the Scripture and its teaching. And so what I want to do today is to review some of that for us. Because this is a battle that in our nation has been in the forefront now for 32 years. And it's easy after 32 years in a battle to, 
to lose sight of things. It's easy after 32 years in a battle to want to back up. It's easy after 32 years in a battle to say, what's the use? We're, we're not going to win this battle. Well, we're not looking for a fight. That's not our motive here. We're not looking just to disagree with people for the sake of disagreeing. These are serious matters to us because of what the Scripture tells us. We are not politically motivated. This is a moral issue, not a political issue. And as I said to you a year ago, as we observed sanctity of human life, it is, a, it is a shame to me, and it should be to us as a nation, that a political party can embrace a pro-abortion position and it not cost them dearly. But I think we can say, thankfully, after this last election, some of them are beginning to get it. <laughs> that this... This shouldn't be a Republican-Democratic debate. It's not. It's a moral issue. And even John Kerry has said amongst the Democrats, we need to make room in the Democratic Party for those who are pro-life. Amidst the gas and the sighs as he said that very thing. But I praise God for that. Where... That's not going to be an issue for party because we recognize the value, the preciousness, and the sanctity of human life. We're not politically motivated. And again, I will not endorse a political candidate from this position, but I'll tell you this. The person who is pro-abortion has disqualified himself as being fit for office. I will not vote for that person. I don't care what banner he's under. He has disqualified himself as being fit for a leadership position. And we will not go away. And it's not because we're stubborn. It's not because we're just trenched in here and we've, we've made our stand and we're not going to back up. Again, God has spoken about these issues. God has spoken about human life. So we will not go away because God's word will not go away. God has spoken. We will declare his word. That's what we desire to do. So because God's word is our authority, we must hold to its teaching. We must hold the teaching in, in the highest regard. This morning, I want us to consider three things. First of all, what the scripture says, what God's word says about the divine role in human origins. Again, I hope this is review. I think it is. But we need to be reminded of this. And this is a message that is becoming, it's being attacked. The divine role in human origin. We unashamedly, as the people of God, according to the Word of God, hold that humanity is the special creative work of God. Turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Let's just go to the foundation. Genesis chapter 1. That there is a sanctity to human life simply because it is the work of God. It is not the result of chance events. It is not an even a divinely guided evolutionary process. Such a distinction is true of the beast. Look in chapter, Genesis chapter 1 verse 25. God made the beast of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, everything that creeps in the ground after its kind. God saw that it was good. 
God didn't classify man with the animals. God didn't create man from the animals. He created animals and beasts to, to make beasts. He created cattle to make cattle. Horses to make horses. Birds to make more birds. Kind after kind. And then verse 26. And God said, let's do something different here. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he didn't use a monkey. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, we are created by God, according to verse 27. The word that's used there when he speaks of creation, the word bara, it always speaks of a divine production. It's God's work. God alone is able to create. But it does not necessarily mean in every case that he creates something from nothing, but from things that we consider to be naturally unfit. We talked about this some months ago on the Wednesday night study. We talked about animals. And man being made from things that are unsuitable to create these things. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord formed man of the dust from the ground. What's He doing? He's creating man from something that, that, should, that does not inherently have within it the nature of humanity. He creates it from the dirt. There's nothing about dirt that should, that should come together and by chance or circumstance or pressure and heat, whatever the case may be, that should create a human being. And yet it does. It's because of the hand of God. God formed man of the dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being or a living soul. Verse 19 of chapter 2, Genesis. And out of the ground, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. There's nothing inherent in dirt and the ground and in earth that you would expect a living creature to come from it. And yet it does. God creates these things. Not necessarily from nothing, although we know part of the creative process was in fact that. There were some things He did create from nothing. But not when He came to man. He used something that He had already created. He used the dirt. He used the earth. Chapter 2, verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. There's nothing about the mere taking the rib out of a human body that you would expect another human to be created from that. It doesn't have the capacity to do that in and of itself. But the hand of God, he took that rib from Adam and he created the woman. So creating things, fashioning things from those things which we'd look at and say, this, this is not suitable material for this end product. But it is when it's placed into the hand of of God, Not only created by God, but also created in the image of God. Verses 26 and 27, back in chapter 1. We read there that God said, we are going to let us create man in our own image. He that man is uniquely endowed to reflect the character of God in a way that the beast cannot, in the way that creation does not. There's a reflection of the glory of God even in creation. It's there. But it's not, it's not nearly as clear as it should be in man. We reflect the character of God in a way that no other part of His creation is able to do so. It's distinct. 
from other creatures. He makes this distinction. He created the other creatures. 124, by divine command. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. He just spoke that the earth bring forth these things. And they came forth. But when He created man, it was by a divine counsel. Let us, for the first time we see the... As we understand within the Trinity of God, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. And God created man in his own image. And it says that in chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground. He acted. He spoke and the beasts were formed, but he used his hands, as it were, to create man. He also created man with a twofold nature that you do not find in the in the beast. He created man both body and soul. Verse two seven said that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, a living being, a part of their existence. The animals do not share with a part of us that has an awareness of of self identity, but also a place whereby we fellowship with the true, the living God. The beast do not have that. So God has placed a special significance upon mankind and being made in the image of God is enough that God gives it special recognition over in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And the covenant that He made with Noah. What does He say here? This is God's word to Noah. Verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Capital punishment. Why? What's the basis for this law among men? The basis is this, because God made man in His image. That's the basis. In the image of God, He made man. So, humanity may not deem that to be of any significance, but God does. It's enough. We simply acknowledge that God has spoken. God has revealed these things. And we hold to the biblical position of men, mankind being uniquely created by God. And a reverence for God should produce a respect for mankind, for humanity. We refuse to succumb to the increasing pressures of humanism and naturalism that deny the, the role of God in these things. We refuse the compromise of even what's accepted in some circles as theistic evolution, which is poor theology and poor science. It raises serious, serious biblical theological problems to embrace the, the idea of theistic evolution, especially if we come with the, the thought, accepted to the point that man came by evolution through the other animals. There's some serious, serious problems with that. So we see the divine role in human origin. But what about beyond that? We can say, well, yes, we understand that God has started these things. Plenty of people who are what we call deists. They would say that God is the one who has created these things. But He set His natural law in order. He set these laws to keep things going. Laws of gravity, all these type things. But God is removed. He doesn't have this personal interest anymore. Well, is that what the Scripture says? Well, let's see. Look at Psalm 139, which... 
which Neil has read to us already this morning, so I'll not take the time to read all of that. Look at Psalm 139. If Scripture is our authority, and you always have to wonder when people can be so dogmatic about things like deism, the belief that God created, God set things and natural laws in their place, and God has withdrawn, and the earth simply sustains itself. It continues to go. You have to wonder, you know, where, what's your authority for that position? You know, at least we can say we have an authority. And with Scripture as our authority, we hold that God is intimately involved with His creation, with mankind in particular. So we reject the idea of deism, that God has made the world and He has withdrawn it. A couple of verses, Acts 17, 28, where Paul talks about there, he says that it is in Him that we live and we move and we exist. And Colossians 1.17, Paul tells the saints, said that it isn't all things hold together. They're held together in Christ or by Christ. Here's the reality, folks. If God withdraws, whatever is there disintegrates. There's no existence apart from the presence of God. It is in Him that we live and we move and that we exist. We cannot exist apart from His very presence in all of our life and all of our world. See, Scripture knows nothing of a self-sustaining creation. But presents God as the all-sustaining Creator. And the psalmist here in Psalm 139, he considers this interactive role that God takes in our daily sustenance. And he looks at this. He thinks, he's thought about this. You can tell by the words that he used. And he doesn't come to the conclusion that this is impossible. Look at verse 3. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. You know, instead of the psalmist looking at this and saying, no, it's impossible. This is the way God does things. He just looks at this and he comes to this conclusion. It's unfathomable. I can't grasp it. It's incomprehensible. Not impossible. And I'll not reject it because I can't grasp it. I'll fall in wonder and worship before the Lord of glory. Who is so great and glorious that he can know every aspect of my life, every aspect of my being, scrutinize every detail of my life. He knows it all. And the psalmist continues by asserting God's, not only of his knowledge of his details of his life, he asserts God's previous knowledge before he was born. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. God's words to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God's word through Isaiah there in the servant song, which is actually the words of Christ. In Isaiah 49, 1, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. 
So we advance the biblical position that God is intimately involved in his creation, still the maker of men who knows us through and through. He has known us from even before our existence and the day that we became a living cell in the womb of our mother. All through our being carried in her womb, from conception to birth and even now. That's the knowledge of God and that's the involvement of God in his creation. I was reading this week in World Magazine and the article that I was reading was talking about, and in a similar context, was talking about the movie It's a Wonderful Life, you know, which you've seen, you've seen the movie where Mr. Bailey is if he what, the, wishes he'd never been born and so had the, the angel lets him see his life. Well, this is what would have happened if you had never been born. And so he goes back and he wouldn't have saved his brother's life and he wouldn't have prevented a, a, a pharmacist from prescribing their own medicine to someone and, and all the implications of a life. And just the writer just said, you know, I wonder what, we've, what vacuum we've left because of so many children we've, tilled, we've killed. You know, I understand that we can, you know, that's one of those things, well, the, the sovereignty of God and the promise of God, that's a place that we, we don't need to go there. But at the same time, there are a lot of lives that we have taken as a sin against God for nothing more than convenience. And just kind of wonder, what kind of a void do we really have here? What could have been different? What might have been different? It's God's divine role in human sustenance. Also, we want to consider what the Scripture teaches to us about God's, the divine role in human suffering. The divine role in human suffering. Turn with me to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. Read these words carefully. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Now we've watched in amazement just in the last few weeks since December the 26th of just the, the degree of destruction, death, human suffering because of the tsunami there in Southeast Asia. Loss of life, loss of possessions, homes, loss of livelihood, everything gone. And that's the type of thing that we all need to step back and wonder. I'm not... I'm not going to be cute here. We need to step back and have some awe in our minds about that. 
But at the same time, we don't need to feel like that we've got to cover for God here. God is quite capable of defending His own name. Of bringing glory into His name as He sees fit. Now, there are those who will say, well, you know, God didn't cause that tsunami, that earthquake and that tsunami. Well, if God didn't cause it, where did it come from? Where did it come from? Who else is in charge around here? This God who says, I am the Lord, there's no other besides me, there's no God. He must be sharing with someone. This God who says in verse 7, I am the one who forms light and darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. You know, some have attempted to justify the taking of human life through abortion, through euthanasia, in order to prevent suffering. God's perspective is a little bit different. God tells us in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Oh, it's just circumstances. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. Is it not I, the Lord? You know, we know the events of the life of Job. Job was a man who suffered greatly. We know the details. We know that Satan was the one who was at work, don't we? And when Job has lost everything, his wife says, you need to curse God and die. Job says what? Shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? You say, wait a minute, Job, he didn't, see, he didn't know the picture here. Well, you know, the writer of the book of Job says this, that Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't sin with his lips. In other words, he didn't say anything that was a sin against God. He didn't falsely accuse God. And he said, I've received good from the hand. Rhetorical question, but the, the idea, I've received good from the Lord. Shall I not receive evil? In the sense of, here in Isaiah, calamity. Shall, not, shall I not receive things that are, come to my life that are disasters? See, God is not ignorant of these things. You know, He's not set back and we don't have to try to protect Him. God is more than willing to take responsibility. And He is often more willing to take responsibility than we are to grant it to Him and to grant Him the credit and to grant Him the glory. Another article I read this week in World Magazine was just talking about the, just how the, the secular media has missed it. You know, one of the reporters was talking about uh, how he stands just in amazement of nature. <laughs> Actually, it was John Piper in his article he wrote for World Magazine. He said, he missed it, folks. This, the wonder here is not the glory and the power of nature. It's the glory and the wonder of, and nature of God. He's missing it. And we rob God of His glory. When we diminish his sovereignty. 
We rob him of his glory when we diminish his sovereignty over all the affairs of his creation. God is content to bring glory to his name through the consequential events that take place in a fallen world. See, it's not as though God can't bring glory to his name in the midst of a fallen world. He can, and he does it daily. But we have... We've gone to the thinking of, well, the only way that God can bring glory to His name is through the good things that are happening. He can do it through the calamities of our world. And if nothing else, folks, when we consider the tragedy and the disasters of what we've witnessed in the last few weeks that have taken place with these tsunamis, we can step back and, and wonder at the greatness of God. But we can also say this, oh God, what have you spared us from? What have you spared us from? How can God do these things? Because He is a God of justice and He has the right to take the life of His creation as He wills, when He wills, what way He wills. And the wonder is that He's not done much more. We're asking the wrong questions. The question is not, how could God do this? The question is, why has He not done much more in light of our rebellion, in light of our sin against Him? So that we witness the birth of a child that has physical or mental limitations. Or the painful existence of the terminally ill. I think we've all been touched in varying degrees by that, have we not? We just come to the point where we just bow to the sovereignty of our Creator. We acknowledge that life itself and the quality of life is ultimately His prerogative, not ours. If God chooses to give life, and it's a life that we'll say it's not going to be a good quality of life, that's God's prerogative. And much of the time it's not out of concern for the child, it's out of selfishness. And we dare not, we dare not remove God from the picture. Because if we do that, which is what's happened in in society apart from God, if we remove God from the sovereignty, from the role of sovereignty in the big picture of things, it's the world where anything goes. Roe versus Wade is part of that. God is free to permit any degree of suffering he pleases to a fallen race. Those who are descendants of Adam, those who are partakers of his sin, still living in a fallen world. But as a people of God, he gives us grace. He gives grace. So that we come through those those crises, we come through those disasters, we come through those calamities in our life, and we look back and wonder how in the world we've done it. And I'll tell you how we've done it. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. And it's a battle, folks, that we, we cannot quit. We cannot retreat. Again, not because we're stubborn, not because we're looking for a fight, not because we've dug in our trenches and we're not going to admit we're wrong. We're simply saying this is what God has said. We will stand true to the Word of God and we will proclaim that message to the day we die. Whatever the laws of the land, as bad as they are, and 
They can get much worse. Whatever the laws of the land say, we will protect life. Because we come from God, we are sustained by God, and even when suffering is an issue, it is God's prerogative because life is His gift. I have two pastor friends, both in St. Louis, both with teenage boys now who suffer from Downs. Both would tell you that they are the most loving children that you would ever see. I talked with with a pastor friend of mine. Every time I talk with him, they're in St. Louis, pastor at First Baptist Church in Fenton. I talked with him a few months ago. And I always ask him, how's Joel? Because Joel has been has been diagnosed with some some problems related to Downs, and he's probably not going to live many more years. He's probably going to have a hemorrhage in his brain, and he's going to be gone. But as I talked to John about his son Joel, he lights up. And he speaks of the joy that Joel brings into his family and he brings into the church and how much Joel loves everybody and how much everybody loves Joel. It's not a quality of life that, that people say that we'd want to bring into this world, but fan, don't you try to take him from that family. It's not ours to decide. It's God's prerogative. He is the Lord. He is sovereign. Let's keep going, folks. We've seen, I think, I think some progress. You know, it becomes apparent every four years, election years. You know, it's brought more and more to the forefront. But I thank God for those, for those people, for those ministries that are fighting this battle on the front day after day after day, year after year, keeping it out there in front of us, keeping it out there in front of the people. Thank God for such ministries that Steve Baker is involved in that give people an alternative. I thank God for what I see in this family, church family of adoption. It gives people an alternative. And what better picture of what God does for us? Adopting. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You've brought us here this morning. And we thank You for the gift of life that we have in Your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank You for the physical life that we have. Lord, we pray that the scourge of this court decision, Roe versus Wade, will be removed from our land. Pray for President Bush and the decisions that he will make as he will likely have the opportunity to appoint Supreme Court justices. And I pray, O oh God, that you would give him boldness to look for those men and women who have a biblical understanding of life. Lord, we ask that you would give grace to your saints to be strong. We thank you for those who are allies with us that, that even are not in the kingdom of God, that, Lord, we ask that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would be united here, that we would be vocal, that we would do all that we possibly can to see that this has dealt its final blow. We ask you to minister grace to those who are there today fighting, those who are today keeping these issues in the forefront. Lord, we long for the day when When our choices of of voting between one man and another 
The issue is not life. The issue may be economy or things of such nature, but it will not be about life. The life is a given. To treasure it, to love it, to protect it. So we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in our responsibilities and our daily calling. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.